my privilege to lead you this morning in the pastoral prayer. And uh, I uh, spent a little time visiting this week and visited with Kathy Souter. And uh, immediately she wheeled her wheelchair over to her desk and uh, pulled out Jesus Calling, the book. And so I assumed she wanted me to read it uh, for that day. And I read it and thought, what a fitting um, way to begin a time when we come together to pray. It said for yesterday, the world is too much with you, my child. Your mind leaps from problem to problem to problem, tangling your thoughts in anxious knots. When you think like that, you leave me out of your worldview, and your mind becomes darkened. Though I yearn to help, I will not violate your freedom. I stand silently in the background of your mind, waiting for you to remember that I am with you. When you turn from your problems to my presence, your load is immediately lifted. Circumstances may not have changed, but we carry your burden together. Your compulsion to fix everything gives way to deep, satisfying connection with me. Together, we can handle whatever the day brings. Fitting way to begin, isn't it? A thought of uh, prayer time and there are a number of uh, needs I'd draw your attention to. You're aware of many of them, I know. Uh, Joyce Cole, who was once a part of this congregation, had a stroke uh, a while back and uh, was moved with her family uh, to uh, Kelowna, or Kamloops, rather, and passed away this week. So if you'd remember her family in uh, this week of grieving. Uh, health needs, there's a lot of health needs. As I visited people, I recognized, and we, they told me the story of where they are, and their physical health issues as well. And there's a number of those. Wendy Mitchell uh, is battling with some cancer and uh, uh, Chuck and Melva let me know that uh, he's running a bit of a fever and so they're uh, a bit anxious for him at this time. Peter Borg, if you could pray for him. Or Peter Borg's in hospital and uh, Wendy Mitchell's running a fever. She's uh, dealing with cancer. Pray for her and Peter Borg is in hospital and uh, not doing very well. Uh, there's also this transition time, which I've shared. We want to do that. I also want to pray for those. Uh, we've got a, you have a group of people here, I think about seven or so, who are traveling to Israel this next week. And if I could have you, uh, those stand, just so you know. And we'll remember you in prayer as well. All of those who are heading off to Israel this coming, uh, sun, next Sunday, actually, the second. And uh, let's pray. Father, we're grateful first and foremost for being reminded of your presence here. We've come to give worship to you, to speak to you, and to hear from you. And more than ever in this time of, uh, of, of a season of prayer, we also are thankful that we have a God who listens, who is anxious to hear us. As a little reading reminded us that you are in the wings often when we get busy trying to fix things on our own. When in fact we, we really just need to call on you and hear what you have to say. And to be reminded, though, Father that you're in charge, that you're a sovereign God, that you oversee and overlook and are involved with all of us. And I particularly lift to you these health needs. They are represented as immediate as, as uh, Bill being ill uh, suddenly and being needed to care for, uh, for those who are in uh, difficulties for Wendy and this fever and as the doctors try to respond and understand what that's about. Peter Berg, in perhaps the final season 
of uh, his, his uh, journey in life. But I thank you, Father, again for reminding us as well that, uh, that uh, if we had hope only for this life, how futile life would be. But we don't. We have the hope and the wonder of glory. And that gives us encouragement and, and uh, assistance, O oh, Father. And so we thank you for that. I also pray for those who will be making a journey, dear Father, to Israel and, and discovering new truths as they uh, come from a, an enriched life that has had the opportunity to learn from your word would suddenly discover what it means to walk in the places where Jesus walked. To be in those places, O oh, Father, where miracles were performed and deeds took place and may it remind them, O oh, Father, you're not limited to a piece of land, a region of the world. You are everywhere and among us even now. For those maybe who came this morning, Father, weighed down by a concern, a weight, something that, uh, that came unbidden to them or was um, a prospect that was laid out or a prognosis or a diagnosis or simply an anxiousness, I pray that you would, in this moment, remind them that you are here. For those who need comfort, for loneliness, give them a sense of your hands, your arms around them. For those who need to be buoyed up for the day, whisper to them that you're involved in this. You have confidence in them. For those, O oh Father, who uh, wonder about the days before, call to mind, O oh Father, that your steadfast love never fails. It is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you, Father, for this season and this time. Bless these, your people, all that will take place in this service, in, uh, in the meeting beyond, and in the days before us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the trouble with the... That was great music. The trouble with that is I know most of the songs and I like to sing, and I don't preach as much as I used to, so sometimes my voice gets a little scratchy, so I thought I can't not sing, but I need to. And so I had a... I, 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 once, um, I, I usually was up on the platform or doing stuff in church. So one day, somebody else was preaching. I got a chance to sit with my family and uh, I was singing along. And my son kind of nudged me and, and he said, Dad, we, just, we don't sing that loud down here. Uh, so, so I've had to learn to temper it a, a little bit along the way. It's great to have my wife, Audrey, along with me on this journey and uh, helping me along the way. She does most of the driving. I sit back and read and sleep and <laughs> do the stuff I do best. Uh, just want to say as well, you have, a, you have an excellent board. I've enjoyed the chance to work alongside of them. And, uh, in a, and, and they have a heart for more than just uh, the church, certainly the church, but the greater and larger community as well. And, uh, and, and, a number, and, and certainly for the people who are part of this congregation, you have a, you have a great legacy too as I have met with people and talked to them about how did you come into the church and what was your exposure and what first drew you to this place and how long have you been here? And you have a, a lot of those things. You also are a church that's in the midst of grief. I understand that, know that. I'm realizing it was just a year ago that Audrey and I came over and I was the district superintendent for Canada West and, and uh, we had a dear place in our hearts and life over there and, and in my life for Neil and uh, the funeral was just a year ago. And, uh, and understanding as well that uh, last week you said bid farewell to Adrian and Kirsten and that young, beautiful little family. And as a board, we talked about all of the feelings that come with that of sorrow and sadness and, 
and, uh, and fear about the future, but also a sense of faith. You got that from Dale as he was talking a little bit about moving forward a, along the way. And as I con- contemplated my, my brief little assignment here with you in this time, I, I thought of this message that is, uh, to me, the most hope-filled thing that we can recognize, even in times of change, is that you're, you're in this together. We're in this together. That's not a misery loves company kind of a thing. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's about uh, you're not alone. You're in this together. You're a community of faith and hope and love. Consider, would you, the words of Paul to the, to the Roman church in Romans chapter 12. Very familiar words and passages here for us. Let me read to you just these first eight verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what, is God, what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself in sober judgment, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with memory, many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all of the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If encouragement, then give encouragement. If it is giving, give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, Romans 12 is a, is a, a statement. When he says that statement, therefore, it, it's a reminder to us that this, this is a bridge from what he has gone on to say just before this. And the 11 chapters before this in Romans are, are rich, deep, theological, profound truths of the Christian faith. He's let us know that all of us as humans, without exception, are sinners in need of the righteousness that only God can provide. That through Christ, God has provided us a way for us to this righteousness by faith. That by his act, we have been put into a right relationship with God again. Not just us, but all of the world. We are initially sanctified, set apart to share in God's glory and grace. And that the way provided for us is for all people everywhere, to Jews and Gentiles alike. There is no, there is no creed or there is no uh, group that are, out, that are left out of this. And it concludes with that amazing little doxology in the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths before tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Therefore, he says... In view of all of this, in light of the act of all the things that God has done for us on our behalf, we're called to live in the spirit that is not a solo venture. The good news is we are in this together. To, uh, 
the, 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 it's, it's the one finger <laughs> illustration we got with the kids. You can't do it just by you. You've got to have others helping along. And to be totally honest, when I first really thought about this message, uh, I kind of wanted to put into it, we're in this mess together. <laughs> Life's a little messy, isn't it? And tough and sometimes difficult and painful. There's a little quirky, quirky kind of little poem that gives a description of the church that I quite like by Lisa Croons. A church, a place where even the wild and woolly have grace, where we don't have to have it all together to come together again. The humble sit forgiven and speechless. The proud sit loudly and survey. The half-dead are fully alive for at least a while. And the half-crazed are calm once more. We, in rare unity, lift our hands and bow our heads in our worship to God. I've been around long enough visited and seen, talked to a few people. I think I could probably name a few of the wild and woolly who are here. <laughs> Maybe a couple of the half-crazed, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you who, but... <laughs> but isn't it true? You know. We lift our hands, bow our head together. God is in this. He is with you in this season. Consider what... Paul says, and as I have reviewed this over the months that I've been working on it, I I see four movements in this passage. The first is he's calling for a radical surrender. This is a call to be different from what we find in other places. Where he simply says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. Now, surrender is not a popular word today. It's, it's hardly the language of our present society and order. I mean, how radically different from the individualism of our present day where so many times people's expectation is rooted and based in what I want and what I deserve, and I have a right to this, and I, what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. I'm entitled But surrender, submission, aren't warm and fuzzy words. You're not going to find a best-selling book or an advertised seminar on submission and surrender. But here's a call that marks the believer. That on one hand, it is very individual. It is my matter of my surrender. I can remember times at an altar, a prayer, where I just finally said, I've given it to you, God. I remember a lighthouse keeping room in my a little bed in Lethbridge where I made that kind of surrender again. But it's also very much together. It's a community project. Now the people of Paul's day would have noted that the sacrifice he's calling for is quite different from what they had in their mind running through their head. They would have remembered the temple where, where a sacrifice would have been taken place like the Old Testament days where a lamb was slaughtered or a, an animal was given, a blood was, was poured out and all of those. In this instance, he is calling for a living sacrifice. The emphasis being on living. Now the structure in the Greek makes it really clear as well that this is not just a kind of a one time, but an ongoing, everyday, moment by moment, daily routine of living this out. What is it that God would want from me? 
It is a choice we make. It's not mechanical. It's not automatic. It has, it, it, it's intentional. Everything in our being is geared often to doing what I want for me, not surrendering. I thought about it and I thought, you know, that's the language of a loving relationship. That's, that's marriage language. It's been great to sit with, down with some people and they would tell me they've been married for 65 years, 50 years, long seasons of time together. In marriage, we surrender to each other. Forsaking all others and being true to you alone is what, the, what oh, so often the marriage ceremony says, saying of all of the things and, and people in this world to whom I, I, I exclude all of those for you. And we don't think of that as an imposition. I, I told a couple the other day who I'm doing some pre-marriage with, I said, you know, marriage is death. And they were a little shocked at that. And then I, and then I, uh, then I explained it to them. I said, I, you've got a lot of stuff already in place and planned you're, that you figured out. You, you know where you're going to live. You, you know who's going to manage the finances. You know whose career you're going to make the, the kind of the centerpiece of what you do in the future. But there's a number of things that you're going to discover when you get married and begin to live together that you never had conversation about. You know what? The first night when you discover that somebody wants the window open and somebody needs to have it closed. And somebody wants the heat up. And somebody wants... Okay, I'm seeing some knots. You understand. Every couple here could tell me of things in their life where they would say, yeah, we discovered this. And somebody's going to have to die to that. Right? Somebody's going to have to say, okay, I... I'll keep the window closed. You die in order to respond to the want of the other person. Living a righteous life is not the easiest life to live. There are times when, when you just like to lie about something. Maybe cheat or fudge the truth a little. Times, times when you feel it would just... It would just be really good to fly off the handle and yell and scream and stomp your feet. And there are moments when you, when you got that little bit of a news that's about somebody that just seems too good to not share around and not gossip if you text it, is it? You know, there's that. It would be, it would be easier. But, but being checked on that and saying, I surrendered to what God chooses. And I'm not going to show, uh, ask for a show of hands on this, but have you ever had a time when you wanted to just spend Sunday morning doing what a lot of other people do on Sunday morning? You know, a majority in our society sleeping in and relaxing and just spending time doing whatever you want. I mean, you live in a beautiful part of the world. And yet, you're here. You come faithfully. And, and, and you dutifully put money in the offering and donate a portion of it to the church. I've seen the the, the, your finance report. Incredibly generous. And I remember at Neil's funeral that there were slideshows that highlighted the fact that many of you would join together in going to parts of the world and doing menial labor to build homes and churches that you will never use. And you do it, not, I hope, out of guilt and shame, but as the passage here says, in view of the mercies of God, what he has done for you. 
I've come to understand that in order to live this way, the surrendered life, to be holy and pleasing to God beyond, is, is beyond simple human ability. I am, I'm just not a good enough person to live that way without God's help. And so Paul goes on in the second movement I see, comes to us in verse 2 where he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you will be able to test and approve God's will, his good and pleasing and perfect will. I'm, I'm interested that in the words that Paul uses here. Uh, first, the, the, the negative injunction where he says, don't conform. And, and the word that is used there for conforming is to mask, to uh, masquerade, to, to, uh, to cover up, to disguise. And, and you know what, what that is in a masquerade. You might, you might be wearing a different garment, but you're the same person underneath that garment. You're the same person behind the mask. That's what conforming is. Kind of uh, the equivalent, if I, if I could, is where you, you play church. You know, where you, you kind of show up every once in a while so, so they at least know who you are. And you put your $5 in the offering. You carry a Bible. You hum along with the songs. Sociologists have a name for that. They call you cultural Christians. It's just kind of what you do. They carry the name and they know the practices, but it's all pretty surface. Do you remember that? I do. When church was just kind of a thing I did and went through and a form I, I, I did to make my mom pleased and, and keep my grandmother happy and off my case. <laughs> I remember that. But also understand I had the disguise of a Christian, but underneath I was still lost and dark. One of your church mottos I saw in a document is real transformation for all people in Christ. And I love that. That's a great goal. That's a, that's a tremendous motto. And, and what an objective to have. Real transformation for people in the name of Christ. Transformation is a much different thing than conforming. The actual Greek word here is one that we use, uh, the scientists use it when they describe it. It's called metamorphosis, the, the description of what it means when a caterpillar uh, weaves a cocoon and goes into that, that time of, of, of absolute change and a butterfly that comes out that is, that is radically, totally, completely, metabolically different than what went in. It is a complete transformation. And, and everything is remarkably different. And that's what it takes place in our lives when Christ comes and does a work in our life. And William Greathouse says it's more than just the thinking capacity. It's character. It's inner disposition. It's the motivating center of both our personal and corporate lives. We are to allow ourselves to be transformed, continually remodeled, progressively sanctified. And by this means, our lives here and now move and more clearly exhibit the signs and tokens of the coming age of God. Transformation. The transforming work of God in my life and in your life. God gave us a new purity. He washed away the ugliness of the sins of my life, the actions I did, the things that I knew were wrong. God gave us a new identity. He received us as sons and daughters and, and as his beloved children. God gave us a new inclination. There was an urge to do what was right 
what in our heritage we call an initial sanctification where we're set aside to be the kind of people that God needs in this world. God gave you new power. And here's the truth. That if you just conform, if you just masquerade, if you just play church, you're going to fail at that. It's going to show up. You're going to slip up. Your true nature is going to show up. We're just not good enough without God's power to live holy lives, righteous lives, transformed lives. My grandfather was a veteran of both World War I and World War II, and and in hindsight, it was probably events that took place during those hard and difficult times and experiences that made him the man he was. But growing up, we feared him. He was mean. He was angry. He was a ticking time bomb. You kind of always tiptoed around because at some point in time, he'd explode in acts of violence, usually meted out against my grandmother, and, and he'd swear and throw things and stomp around the house and then leave sometimes for days and weeks at an end. But at 82 years of age, thanks to my grandmother who for 51 years prayed for him and, and for the unfailing love of a church just like yours, he came to an altar of prayer one Sunday morning and he confessed his sins and poured out his remorse and regrets. And I'm here to tell you he was changed transformed, sweet, mellow, quick to tears when he talked about what Jesus did. The whole point of transformation, this moral renewal is to enable us to do and live lives that will adequately reflect what God wants to do and accomplish in our lives. It isn't overnight, but it is a lifelong process of thinking more the way God thinks. And it doesn't take place alone. It takes place within community. We're in this together. A third movement that Paul has here is, is gaining a true view of who I am in Christ, the call to honesty. He says, For the, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Paul contemplates outlining the the way in which God has equipped you as a community of faith to do the works of service, but before he does that, he ultimately wants you to know there's two things that will derail whatever you choose to do as a church, whatever you want to be as a community of faith. And the first is an inflated idea of who we are and what we can do. Or, on the other hand, too low of a sense of what with Christ we can do. Again, Great House says, our gift is not an occasion for selfish pride. Our gifts are a part of a community asset. Just like this building, you are part of the asset of this church. We're to think of ourselves in sober judgment, being aware of the measure of faith that God has given to us. What I know about this is that I am made in God's image. Two, I am here for a purpose. And three, I'm unique. I'm different from you and others. And that's the beauty of the church. I haven't found 
people here as I visited that I thought, well, they're just like this person. Or just like, they all have unique, amazing stories. God has a reason to make you the way you are. A reason to make me the way that I am. But the beauty of it is we do it together, finger to finger to lift the block. Fourth movement that I see here is a call to action. That's typical of God to be able to say, well, I don't want it to just be a matter of, of, uh, of, of, of theory. I want to be able to say, what are you going to do about it? It's a call to action, to do something, to act on the basis of what God has provided for you. You are a body of Christ here in Penticton. Your community in this together as a, as a presence in this area. So what do we need to continue to do? Five simple things. One, we need to continue to grow in our love for Christ. That, that's why the emphasis on the fact that you're in this together as a people who are committed and surrendered uh, to a faith and a life lived together in Christ for the sake of Christ. Our friendships in this community are not just to make us feel better, but to provide for us a, a community where we can be better and become better and be becoming better. The true friend is the one who often encourages but challenges and sometimes corrects. Proverbs says, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. So we need to grow in our love for Christ. We need to enjoy and celebrate life together. Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says, But God had put the body together, giving greater honor to some parts that lacked it, so that there would be no division in the body, but that, it's, that each part should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. The body of the church is like that. I know you know that. I asked for a list of people to visit while I was going to be here, and so Debbie sent me a, uh, a great list. She's a, such an efficient lady in the office there for you, and uh, gave me a list of those. But I also went and asked people as well, you know, who should I visit? Who do you think? And, and, uh, and what I was pleased with is often they gave me exactly the same names. And usually when they gave me the name, they attached a story and a meaning and a purpose behind it and something that they appreciated and valued about this person both the tough things that they were going through and the good things. And that doesn't happen by accident. It happens as we engage each other in this journey. But it can't just be people you know well. It has to be every single person who comes through this door. Whether a, and as I ask people, how did you come to this place? Many times they told me about, well, you know, I moved to the town or somebody invited me or those things. But they came in and they connected with somebody. So Linda's set up a great greeting system here uh, and, and where all the doors are manned and all the people, and I got re greeted three or four times just coming in. But we also need to do that for each other and one another. And it'd be a sad thing if a stranger came in and sat among you and never received a greeting. Or if somebody who's been here for years and you kind of say, well, they've got their friends and all. Expand. This is a time when more than ever, you need that. There isn't the glue of a pastor in place. You're it because you're in this together. Third thing is embrace the tangible presence of one another. 
This is one of the great and powerful truths about church community, to understand the truth of what Hebrews 10.25 says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of, of some is, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. Now, this is one of those realities that your church is dealing with, and, and, and that's the matter of being close to a tangible person. You get attached to people. And certainly those who've come and ministered to, the, to you, you got attached to them, to Jamie, to Neil, to Adrian, to their families. And coming here, and they're not here now, might certainly heighten the feeling of loss that you feel. And often in those times when you come and that presence isn't here among you, there's an inclination to say, well, it's just painful to realize that and maybe I just won't come anymore. In fact, some people might make that decision. I've seen it happen. I've pastored churches where that took place and and what I discovered, what I've discovered over time is when people leave, they find out it's not just the pastor that I miss. It's the people. It's the community. It's Mrs. So-and-so. It's the wild and woolly. <laughs> it's the half-crazed. It's all of those things that are a part of, I miss that. I even had a lady once who left and she returned to, to, to one of my churches and she said to me, you know churches have a smell. Okay, the cooking, you know, what is it? And, and uh, she didn't say what she said, but I, I missed the smell. I missed being here. And so it is important for us to recognize presence is so meaningful and value. You are important to each other. Don't, don't pass that by. Fourth is service. I get a feeling you do that quite well, but it's sharing together and it's, it's evident how people work together. And I, I worked with a, a church that was in transition once, and, they, and, and, I, and I spent a little time with them, and we collected stories about how people came to be a part of the church. When was it in your journey in this church that you felt like you really belonged and connected? And one guy uh, said to me, you know, we moved in, and we'd come a couple of Sundays, and he said, one night I got a call. It was late at night, and somebody said, the basement's flooded. Would you come and help mop up? And he said, just that, I felt I belong here. <laughs> and he said, that I have this memory of mopping up water from the basement floor with a couple of other guys singing hymns as we did it. And I knew I'm in the place I need to be. Even more so in times of change like this, the importance of serving outside the walls of the church is also important. I'm reminded people from time to time that while people in general uh, have a, have, are, are generally positive and about compassion responses to needs, what I've also discovered is the homeless shelters, the compassionate centers, aren't started by atheists and agnostics. It's Christians who say, Jesus would want us to do this as an outflow of this amazing grace. And finally... And importantly, is prayer. No one believed that Jesus reminded his followers in Matthew 18 and 20 that wherever two or three are gathered together, I am there with you. We pray for another, especially in a time of transition and change and, and crisis in life. 
It's important to be able to know those things. As I prayed in my prayer, there might have been times that somebody came through the doors of this church and sat down for this worship, and in their heart, there's a great fear they have. There's something they found out this week that's got a concern for them, and they're not sure how to tell somebody. So good for us to be able to, in fellowship, be able to say, how's your health? And also, how's your heart? What are the joys and what are the sorrows? Jesus said to his followers, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. Because he understood we're in this together. So it's time now to put your faith into action. And, and uh, it's not a solo thing, but it is together. We're in this. Together indeed.